On October 25th, 1919, 31-year-old Peter Christian Barry arrived at Waterloo Station in London. He was there to pick up a racehorse named Jazz. He told the seller he was just a trainer, but he was much more than that. Barry was one of the most skilled horse ringers in London. Jazz was a key part of his latest scam. Barry smiled as he led his new colt onto a train headed for Stockton-on-Tees, a city 250 miles away. That gave him about eight hours to turn Jazz into a horse of a different color. Inside the private horse box, Barry laid out all the tools of his trade. Bleach, ammonia, henna dye, and a drill. Working quickly, Barry carefully bleached Jazz white. After it dried, he mixed in the henna with his bare hands until the horse's new coat looked convincing. Finally, Barry put the finishing touches on his masterpiece. He treated Jazz's face and mane, adding or removing white spots with stamps and stencils. Then he drilled down the horse's teeth to make it appear younger. Barry had boarded the train with a three-year-old brown colt named Jazz. When the train arrived at Stockton, he disembarked with a two-year-old bay colt named Coat of Mail. Barry proudly led his horse to the racetrack, ready to show his work to the world. When they arrived, Coat of Mail was a 20-to-1 underdog in the upcoming race meant only for slower two-year-old horses. Barry was pleased to see the long odds. It was time to make some money. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Every week, we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played. I'm Tim Johnson. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Today, we're discussing Peter Christian Barry, one of the most skilled fraudsters in the history of horse racing. This week, we'll explore Barry's beginnings as a con artist and horse painter and how he became notorious for cheating his way to victory in England. Next week, we'll cover his move to the United States and his eventual downfall in 1934. From the beginning, Peter Christian Barry was an outsider. He grew up in Scotland, but always considered himself an Irishman, like his father. Not much else is known about Barry's childhood or teenage years, but what's certain is that, from a young age, Barry was fascinated with horses and horse racing. But his interests were never exactly wholesome. In 1904, 16-year-old Barry bought a gray mare from prominent artist Lady Mary Cameron for 20 pounds. He then immediately painted the horse brown and sold it back to Cameron, claiming it was a valuable racing horse. He netted 350 pounds from the deal, worth about $50,000 today. This con, 
painting horses to disguise their identity is known as ringing. Already, Barry knew he'd found his passion in life. He would be a con man, specializing in painting horses. But Barry's life plans were interrupted when his family relocated to the other side of the world, Australia. There, Barry continued his work with horses, but for a while remained on the right side of the law. When he was a young adult, he studied as a veterinarian research student, specifically learning how to care for horses' teeth. In 1911, when he was 23 years old, he began working as a veterinary dentist for the Royal Auxiliary Corps in Canberra, the capital city of Australia. Three years later, in 1914, the world was thrown into chaos when the First World War began. Britain entered the war in August, followed quickly by Australia. The following month, Barry enlisted in the 6th Light Horse Regiment of the Australian Imperial Forces. He listed his trade as veterinary dentistry and was given the rank of private. The Great War took 26-year-old Barry far away from the ranches of Australia. On May 14, 1915, he arrived in southern Turkey to participate in one of the biggest and bloodiest offensives of the entire war. A large force of Australian soldiers were sent, including Barry, to attack the Ottoman forts at Gallipoli, a peninsula over 100 miles away from Istanbul. They did not succeed, and the Battle of Gallipoli devolved into a costly, bloody stalemate. When Barry arrived, the battle had been going for four months with little movement. The beach camp was cramped and dangerous, constantly threatened by mortars or enemy snipers. Peter Barry decided the battlefield was not the place for him. He wasn't much of a soldier. After two months on Gallipoli, Barry was moved to a hospital ship with an injured foot, possibly from a self-inflicted wound. After it had healed, Barry was sent back to the beach, but within a day he complained of dysentery and was removed by a field ambulance. In August, he was shipped back to England, leaving the war behind. Back on the home front, Barry hopped between military hospitals, complaining of phantom stomach cramps. He was eventually medically discharged on September 14, 1916. As soon as he was out of the army, Barry began exaggerating his military service. Even in his official examinations around his discharge, Barry claimed he'd been at Gallipoli far longer than he actually had. Later in life, he'd even lie about the reasons for his discharge saying he'd heroically sustained a serious arm injury that required hospitalization instead of a stomach bug. Barry now found himself free from responsibility in England with a new lease on life. After being discharged from the army, he worked a series of odd jobs, but nothing stuck. He wasn't fully educated or a licensed veterinarian, so he did mostly unskilled work. It wasn't long before he became bored with the menial tasks and found himself drawn back into the world of petty crime. In early 1917, Barry was arrested in Liverpool for stealing a checkbook and wallet. He was sentenced to two months hard labor in a prison camp. Prison was a wake-up call, and Barry resolved to turn his life around. After his release, he returned to London and settled down. In April 1918, just after he turned 30 years old, he married a 23-year-old bandmaster's daughter named Florence Eva Vince and kept his nose clean, 
at least for a little while. The newlyweds struggled financially. Barry tried to return to his life as a horse expert, attaining a trainer's license in Ireland in mid-1918. But he wasn't able to find steady work, no matter what he tried. The Barrys made their problems even worse by living in the lap of luxury. They insisted on dressing in the latest fashions and staying in the upscale Queen's Hotel in Leicester Square. On top of that, they owned eight horses. With his debts mounting, Barry once again returned to petty crime. In early 1919, he was arrested for writing a bad check for 275 pounds. This time, however, he was acquitted. Barry once again decided to turn over a new leaf. But this time, he didn't pretend to go straight. Instead, he devoted all his attention to devising the perfect scam. By late 1919, business was booming in London. The Great War had finally ended, and a generation of soldiers were returning home with money to spend. Starred for entertainment and excitement, crowds packed the racetrack every day to bet on horses. This loose atmosphere of wild gambling and poor decision-making was a thieves' paradise. Pickpockets, poker-playing card sharpers, and dishonest bookmakers made a fortune preying on the gullible and the gambling addicted. Peter Christian Barry wanted in on the action. It was time to paint some horses. When we come back, Barry begins his horse-ringing operation. Now, back to the story. After World War I, London was booming, flush with soldiers home from war with cash to burn. In 1919, 31-year-old former veterinarian Peter Christian Barry wanted in on the action. To pay his mounting debts, he turned to a scam he would later refer to as horse ringing. The premise is simple. A scammer owns two horses, one slow and one fast. But leading up to a race, he only shows the slow runner. After seeing the horse's shoddy performance, the bookmakers will give it long odds when it comes time to compete, because there's a very small chance it could actually win. But when it comes time to run, the con artist swaps out the slow horse for a fast one that's been repainted to look identical to the slow horse. The gamblers who were involved in the scam bet heavily on the ringer. When that horse stuns the crowd by winning the race, the con artist and the gamblers split the profit. If everything goes as planned, no one is the wiser. Everyone else simply believes the slow horse had an unexpectedly good day. In 1919, horse racing and all organized sports were still in their infancy. Widespread rules didn't really exist, nor did governing bodies to adequately enforce them. Until 1913, horses didn't even need to have names. In London, an unprecedented amount of money was being thrown around the racetracks. Combined with a lack of institutional oversight, the stage was set for Peter Christian Barry to make a fortune. To begin his con, Barry bought a racing horse named Scylla for 400 pounds from a wealthy man named Gilbert Marsh. He paid via check, which predictably bounced. By the time Marsh realized what happened, the horse was long gone. When Marsh caught up to Barry and confronted him, Barry claimed he'd bought it on behalf of a client who then sailed with the horse to Ireland. When Marsh pressed Barry on how he could contact the client, Barry told him that the client had been on a ship, the RMS Leinster, which was sunk by a German submarine in the Irish Channel. Both client and horse were lost. 
In reality, Barry was setting up that horse to be used as a ringer. Marsh didn't believe a word Barry said, but he was impressed with the ease with which the man lied so convincingly. As it turned out, Marsh was a kindred spirit. Like Barry, he presented himself as a wealthy man living in a luxurious Savile Row apartment, but was, in actuality, a liar and scammer too. The two men had complementary skills. Barry had the technical expertise, his background as a trainer and veterinarian had taught him everything he needed to know about horses, how to manage them, and how to disguise them. But he needed a partner who could handle the gambling side of the operation. Although Barry didn't like Marsh personally, he knew Marsh's help would be invaluable in the horse ringing operation. If Marsh recruited the right gamblers, he could increase the profit Barry made with his ringers, maintaining Barry and his wife's lives of luxury. So the two went into business together. Marsh brought Barry to his stables where he owned three horses. One of them, a three-year-old filly named Mexican Belle, resembled a filly that Barry owned, a two-year-old named La Lune. The resemblance was close enough that Barry believed he could make Mexican Belle look exactly like La Lune. The transformation required adding hair to Mexican Belle's tail, as well as painting the horse's fetlocks, a joint between its knee and hoof. Barry also used dye to cover Mexican Belle's large blaze, the white stripe extending down its forehead. Through experimentation, Barry discovered that the best dye to use was henna, a relatively recent import to England from India and the Middle East. Importantly, henna wasn't water-soluble, so the ringer horse wasn't at risk of being exposed by a sudden rainstorm. With careful manipulation, Barry was able to turn Mexican Belle's natural reddish-brown color into the specific tint of La Lune. Pulling on his past as a veterinary dentist, Barry focused heavily on Mexican Belle's teeth, the primary indicators of a horse's age. With careful use of a knife and drill, he was able to make the three-year-old's teeth look identical to a two-year-old's. When Barry's work was done, not even the stable boys who saw Mexican Belle every single day were able to recognize her. It was off to the races. On September 10, 1919, Mexican Belle prepared to make her ringer debut, disguised as Peter Barry's horse, La Lune. Barry entered the horse in two races at the Doncaster racetrack that week, both against two-year-old horses that Mexican Belle, a three-year-old, would easily beat. These races would be a real test of Barry's skill as a horse painter. Not only would Mexican Belle be scrutinized by hundreds, but her former trainer was also in attendance. If he recognized his old horse, the entire scam would be over before it began. Even in the face of such pressure, Barry decided to push his luck. He wanted to cheat even further by doping up Mexican Belle before each race. For the first race, he gave Mexican Belle a shot of laudanum, an opium derivative that would make her run slower. Then, with even longer odds on the second race, Barry would give Mexican Belle a shot of cocaine. The first race went as planned. Under the influence of laudanum, the horse registered as La Lune finished unplaced. After Mexican Belle had recovered, Barry shot her up with 240 milligrams of cocaine and set her up to run the second race. With 100 to 8 odds, Barry stood to make a great deal of money if the disguised horse won. 
As Mexican Bell lined up at the starting line, Barry could tell something was wrong from the stands. She seemed twitchy and irritated, roughly chewing at her reins. He worried that he'd given her a little too much cocaine. But sitting far away, there was nothing he could do. As the race began, Mexican Belle chewed through her reins and sprinted wildly onto the track. Barry held his head in his hands as he watched the horse run out of control. Just as things seemed like they couldn't get worse for Barry, they did. Mexican Belle's former trainer had jumped onto the racetrack to help calm the horse down. Luckily, the trainer didn't recognize her, and she was returned to the stable without incident. Still, the entire racing adventure had been a loss. He had overplayed his hand, overdoped his horse, and lost money. But there was one bright side. He'd proven beyond the shadow of a doubt that his horse painting skills worked. On October 25, 1919, at the Stockton race course, Barry registered a two-year-old horse named Coat of Mail for a five-horse race. To cover his tracks, Barry called himself Arthur Pearson and listed his residence as the Victory House Hotel in Leicester Square. Coat of Mail, a two-year-old bay colt, belonged to a dealer named Walter Hopkins, who bought him for a paltry 90 pounds from a trainer in Newmarket. The purchase had one stipulation. The horse wasn't to be raced in England. Not that Hopkins wanted to race Coat of Mail. The horse was sickly and never left Hopkins' stable which made him a perfect subject for Peter Barry's schemes. Barry approached Hopkins and offered his services. With the skills Barry had and could prove worked, he could help Hopkins make some money off the otherwise useless coat of mail. Despite some warnings from friends about Barry, Hopkins decided to give him a shot. Technically, this went against the terms of coat of mail's purchase, but neither Hopkins nor Barry cared. Contract enforcement among horse trainers was not particularly stringent. To make the scam work, Hopkins bought another horse, a three-year-old brown colt named Jazz, for 800 pounds. Barry picked up the horse and got him on a train to Stockton. Inside the horse box on the train, Barry went to work. Replicating the work he'd done on Mexican Bell, Barry turned the horse from a brown colt into a bay colt, transforming Jazz into coat of mail. It was snowing when Barry and his horse reached Stockton, making it easier to keep Jazz covered up and hidden. There, his gambling partner Gilbert Marsh had made arrangements for the betting and hired a jockey. But Marsh was playing his own game. He'd told many people about the switch in exchange for a percentage of their winnings, which would theoretically win him far more. Instead of a small circle of gamblers in the know, as Barry preferred, there were 75. But Marsh had miscalculated. Because so many people knew about the grift, the odds against Coat of Mail drifted from 20 to 1 underdog to 5 to 2 favorite before the race began. The entire point of the scam, keeping the odds long to win a profit, had been ruined. To Barry's frustration, everything else went off without a hitch. Coat of Mail easily won the race. Barry expected a windfall of 40,000 pounds, but thanks to Gilbert Marsh's manipulations, the gamblers only won 5,000. Barry himself only took home 500, and Marsh made 750. 
The sheer number of people who knew about the horse switch had more consequences than just limiting their payday. It also attracted the suspicion of other horse trainers, journalists, and the organizers of the race. The organizers wrote to Barry, trying to reach the fictional Arthur Pearson. Barry responded by sticking to his story about Code of Mail and boldly asking for his prize money for the win. The organizers obliged him and sent him a check for 167 pounds. Barry immediately spent almost all of it on a fur coat and a rug for his wife. In the midst of all the excitement, Barry never lost sight of the lifestyle he was trying to maintain. The Coat of Mail Ringer had been a success, but a modest one. Barry wanted a much larger payday for his work. Soon, he discovered he could piggyback off his winnings if he pushed his scam a bit farther. The victorious Coat of Mail had interest from buyers after his victory. Barry realized he could sell his slow horses off the back of their false victories. To do that, he and Gilbert Marsh scouted for gullible gamblers that made easy marks. Norman Weiss was one of their victims. Weiss was a healthy Hungarian-born jeweler who loved horse racing and gambling, but had absolutely no knowledge of either. He regularly bet hundreds of pounds on someone else's advice or just on a hunch. As soon as Weiss fell into Barry and Marsh's orbit, he started losing money. Marsh, pretending to be a fellow millionaire, convinced Weiss to buy a half share in one of his horses. Perhaps wanting to be cut in or as payback for the previous gambling mishap, Barry undermined his partner's scheme. He warned Weiss that Marsh was untrustworthy and got Weiss to back out of the deal. Frustrated, Marsh turned to a different tactic. He invited Weiss over to his apartment to supposedly meet an Indian Maharaja who sold pearls. When Weiss arrived, he found only Marsh and a few friends, who lured Weiss into a card game where he lost over 2,000 pounds. Afterward, convinced that Marsh was a crook, Weiss refused to deal with him further. Marsh had gotten greedy and had scared Weiss away. So Barry swooped in to fill the void. On December 28, 1919, he offhandedly mentioned to Weiss that he had a horse guaranteed to win the next day at Sheltenham. However, showing his skill as a scam artist, Barry refused to tell Weiss the name of the horse. Keeping the name a secret not only wet Weiss's appetite, it made his tip look more legitimate. As Barry planned, Weiss tracked him down the next day at the racetrack and asked which horse would win. Barry struck a deal. He would tell Weiss which horse to bet on, but in exchange, Weiss had to buy the horse after the race. Weiss agreed instantly, and Barry told him the horse's name was Silver Badge. Silver Badge was supposedly an army surplus horse, owned by a retired lieutenant in the Royal Corps of Engineers. Befitting a horse that had gone through war, Silver Badge came onto the racetrack looking hobbled with singed hair and bandaged legs. The bookmakers gave it 10 to 1 odds to win. Despite its appearance, Silver Badge shocked the crowd by cruising to an easy six-length victory, just like Barry said it would. After the race, Weiss happily bought Silver Badge for 510 pounds. There was just one problem. Weiss had bought a horse that didn't exist. There was no Silver Badge. The mare, along with its war history and veteran owner, was fiction entirely from the imagination of Peter Christian Barry. 
The horse that had actually won the race was another of Barry's horses named Shining Moor. Weiss had purchased a phantom. But not everyone was as gullible as Norman Weiss, and other gamblers and horse trainers began spreading rumors that Barry was ringing horses. Sooner or later, someone would realize what was really going on. When we come back, Peter Christian Barry faces increased scrutiny and trouble with the law. Now back to the story. In early 1920, 32-year-old horse painter Peter Christian Barry was at the top of his illegal profession. Thanks to his skill at ringing horses, Barry was making thousands of dollars in every race by disguising older and faster horses as younger and slower ones. His most recent success came when his horse, Shining Moor, won an unlikely victory at Sheltonham, netting Barry thousands of pounds. In the aftermath, Barry sold Shining Moor under the phony moniker Silver Badge to a gullible jeweler, Norman Weiss. But Barry didn't actually want to get rid of Shining Moor. He only wanted to pretend to sell it under a fake name. Barry would only have a problem if Weiss ever actually wanted to see his new horse. Like always, he opted to take a risk and went through with the deal. He simply hoped Weiss never bothered to check in on his purchased horse. Predictably, Barry's luck lasted less than a week. A few days after the race, Weiss tried to bring friends to the stables to see his new horse. Barry bluffed, telling them that Silver Badge was at another stable. A few weeks later, after returning from a business trip, Weiss tried again to see his horse. Barry again delayed, telling Weiss that Silver Badge had sustained an injury and was sent to Ireland to be used as a breeder. At this point, Weiss was suspicious. He heard rumors that Silver Badge was actually a ringer and confronted Barry, demanding to know the truth. In response, Barry turned indignant. He denied the gossip so vociferously that Weiss apologized for even bringing it up. Weiss was off his trail, for the moment. But Barry now knew that rumors were circulating about Silver Badge and his cheating. He tried to get rid of the evidence by selling off his old ringer, Coat of Mail, to a jockey looking to export horses to India. But the jockey was warned off by another trainer who knew the truth about Barry's activities. Even with a clear target on his back, Barry couldn't stop himself from ringing. On April 4, 1920, Easter Sunday, Barry took Shining Moore to Plumpton to race as herself. To give her an extra edge, Barry even gave Shining Moore a small shot of cocaine. The horse ultimately finished third in the race. The next day, in what Barry called the most audacious act of villainy in his career, he replaced Shining Moore with yet another ringer, a faster mare from Ireland. He had now replaced one ringer with another. Barry was delighted by his own shenanigans, even more so when the fake Shining Moor won by 10 lengths at 6 to 1 odds. Barry kept making money, so he kept ringing. Next, he ran a four-year-old horse named The Clown, under the alias of Jazz, in two races meant for three-year-olds, again winning easily. However, not all of his ringers were successful. Pushing his luck even further, Barry bought a three-year-old horse named Homs who had never raced before. Barry painted Homs and gave him the name Golden Plate. Gilbert Marsh then set Golden Plate up to race against two-year-olds in Chester, hiring a skilled jockey and lining up thousands of dollars in bets. 
When the race began, however, the horse didn't quite cooperate. Golden Plate stood sideways at the starting gate and was quickly left in the dust. The jockey finally managed to get the horse onto the track and near the front of the pack, but it was too late. The ringer had failed. Luckily, Barry saw the blunder coming and mitigated some of the damage. Before the race, he noticed that Golden Plate wasn't doing well with the jockey, so he chose to bet on the actual favorite instead. Thanks to Gilbert Marsh's gamblers skewing the odds by betting on Golden Plate, Barry won a fair amount. Even when his ringers failed, Barry still made a small profit. Naturally, he spent it immediately on his wife to prop up their lavish lifestyle. But Barry wouldn't stay lucky forever. His recent big wins had attracted the attention of Scotland Yard. It wasn't just the surprising victories that aroused the suspicions of detectives. It was the mysterious and vague backstories Barry had invented for his horses. On a spring day in 1920, Barry was disembarking a train at Charing Cross Station when he was greeted by a police inspector and taken into custody. When the police questioned him, Barry pretended as if he'd been a victim himself. He said he was solely responsible for training Shining Moor and only found out later that the horse had been used as a ringer. Any crime that had been committed with his horse, Barry said, was done by others. Meanwhile, Barry's co-conspirators instantly flipped on him. They all pointed to Barry as the single criminal mastermind while complaining they had no knowledge of the scam. Barry was incensed, especially when he found out that Gilbert Marsh avoided arrest by bribing his way out of trouble. In July, Barry was officially charged with obtaining money under false pretenses for the coat of mail and silver badge victories. When the trial began in September, there was widespread coverage in the newspapers. Barry became a household name. The prosecution presented pictures of horses before and after Barry's treatment, convincingly arguing that his horse painting skills explained both coat of mail and silver badge's strange victories. Barry, realizing he had no real way to defend himself, pled guilty. In October 1920, the judge sentenced 32-year-old Barry to three years in prison. He barely had time to say goodbye to his wife before he was taken away. His co-conspirators thought they had weaseled their way out of trouble by ratting on Barry, but to their surprise, they were also found guilty. The judge sentenced both Walter Hopkins and Norman Weiss to 15 months for their roles in the scheme. Weiss immediately appealed his conviction, truthfully arguing that he was an unwitting accomplice and, in fact, a victim of Barry's schemes. Unfortunately for him, the court couldn't believe that Weiss was so gullible. They rejected his appeal. At the end of it all, after three years as a free man, Peter Christian Barry found himself where he began, doing hard labor in an English prison. While he served his sentence at Dartmoor Penitentiary, Barry seemed to be consumed by thoughts of revenge against the police who caught him and against Gilbert Marsh, who had betrayed him. He was so consumed with animus, he even attempted to sue the police for taking bribes, specifically from Gilbert Marsh. But the case was thrown out, and Barry's dreams of retribution were dashed. In the spring of 1923, 35-year-old Peter Barry finally earned his release and was met with an unpleasant surprise. His wife was five months pregnant with another man's child. That summer, she gave birth to a girl. 
While Barry and his wife didn't get divorced, the birth and the prison time fractured their marriage irreparably. By the summer of 1923, Barry was looking for a way out. But he needed some money before he committed to running away. Barry decided to try cashing in on his minor fame. He worked with thriller novelist Edgar Wallace to write a series of confessional magazine articles detailing his horse-ringing exploits. The essays were short and often fictionalized. Barry and Wallace were more focused on telling a good story than on telling the truth. Capitalizing on the British public's momentary fascination with the sport and scandals of horse racing, the pieces were a minor success for Barry, but they weren't enough to get him back on his feet. In the final article, published in June of 1923, Barry publicly declared that he would never paint another horse. He needed a new way to make money, but he had no idea where to start. With the English police cracking down on gambling fraud, returning to horse ringing wasn't really an option. Left with few options, Barry decided there was nothing left for him in England. He had no interest in staying in a country where he couldn't pursue his passion for cheating. And he had no intention of raising a child that wasn't his. So Barry set off for greener pastures. He bought a ticket on an ocean liner and set sail for the United States, leaving his life in England and his wife behind for good. In America, Barry found what he was looking for. New opportunities, new horses to paint, and more money than ever before. But he'd also find greater risks and greater danger. Horse ringing in the United States wasn't just a gentleman's game meant for con men and gamblers. It was deeply tied to the world of organized crime. And Barry threw himself straight into the deep end. Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two of Peter Christian Barry's story. We'll cover Barry's next chapter in America, as well as his spectacular downfall. You can find all episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Sports Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Mike Ramos with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Ryan Lee with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy.